Welcome to Pound the Rock Scores NBA Podcast. My name is Joseph Cacharo, and I'm joined remotely by my equally weary, equally sleep-deprived, Joe Wolfhard. What's going on, man? What uh, what a day. I'm going to assume that we have uh, nothing close to permission to use the music on a podcast for a reputable sports media company, but I, I really wanted to um, splice the loudest part of uh, No Sleep Till Brooklyn from the Beastie Boys in, in here during the intro. But it's fine. We'll settle for our Pound the Rock intro music. Um, because, yeah, uh, James Harden's going to Brooklyn. And anyone who's anyone associated with the NBA probably got very little sleep in uh, in the immediate aftermath as we were all kind of doing our thing and writing. And for any anyone tuning in, well, you wouldn't be tuning in. You'd be clicking in. To this podcast with Wolfon and I, do want to let you know that we have a piece up, a long but informative piece that uh, commenters seem to like, which is rare. Commenters don't like anything, so that tells you how great this piece is. It's us breaking down the four-team, seven-player Torian Prince blockbuster from all uh, the James Harden blockbuster from all four angles, all four teams involved, and that's essentially what we're also going to do on today's podcast. We potted yesterday, we talked a little about Harden's unhappiness, but we figured, given the magnitude of this deal, we needed to pot again, obviously. So here we are. No sleep till Brooklyn. Joe Wolfon and I, in the Pound the Rock studios, aka our houses. Still a pandemic going on, which James Harden doesn't seem to care about based on his recent behavior. Anyway, let's get into it. James Harden going to Brooklyn. Wolfon, that was one hell of an intro. Talk to me. What are you thinking? Well, I mean, I think we should start with the obvious, which is the Indiana Pacers (laughs) snagging Karis LeVert for an expiring Victor Oladipo, swooping in there, just swooping in. Um, I guess we should probably start with the Nets, right? Like they are the team that that acquired James Harden. I think, look, the the conversation is really going to boil down to like there is all in is all in gets. They they traded literally every piece of draft capital that was available to them to trade. Uh, their next three first rounders, if they can trade, you know, separated by two years essentially, along with uh, like pick swaps for the four years in between. And this is the thing with pick swaps, like they you want to throw that out and like, I know you like to do this and be like, they, they traded seven first round picks. No, I don't say they, tra- I, what I'd they say, say, they traded control of seven. They first traded round control. I, I understand. But also recognize that at least like probably the, those first two swaps at the least are not going to come into effect. Agreed. So but did they, or did they not relinquish control? They relinquished control, <laughs> but I, I just don't think it's, it's probably like, in a worst case scenario for Brooklyn, like two pick swaps um, and the three first rounders, which is obviously an absolute haul. Um, but so that that's one element of this, like what the Nets gave up, how all in they are, how much pressure is now on them to win a championship really in the next two years. And on the flip side, you know, the package that the Rockets decided they wanted because by most accounts, they could have had Ben Simmons if they'd wanted him. Um and then, and then another choice the Rockets made, which was that they wanted Victor Oladipo instead of Karis LeVert. Um, and we can we can get into talking about the other two teams that got involved in this deal to 
sort of facilitate it. Um, but yeah, if you want to start with the nets, I mean, we, we can just start with what this is all going to look like uh, with Kyrie Irving, James Harden, and Kevin Durant. Whether that trio and the now somewhat shaky depth that the nets have around them is enough to win a championship, which is really the only thing that is going to make this trade worthwhile from Brooklyn's perspective. So I guess I'll flip this back to you. I mean, do you think this is the championship favorite now? I mean, I, I am hesitant to say so. I would probably put them as the favorites in the East. Uh, the offensive firepower is just completely ridiculous. Uh, I, I don't know how you guard this team. Um, but I have a lot of questions and concerns as well. And I, I would peg them probably as the favorites in the East, but not with like a supreme degree of confidence. So yeah, I don't know where are you at with that. I think they're the favorites in the East. I don't think the gap between them and the rest of the East is as big as you'd assume it is or assume it was with three superstars in the fold. I wouldn't call them the favorites. I mean, Odds-wise, I believe they're now the co-favorites with the Lakers to win the title. But from a likelihood standpoint, I, I wouldn't call them the favorites to win the title. I'd still have the Lakers there. Look, even though I'm usually Pat Riley-like in my perpetual willingness to go for broke in order to acquire superstars and figure out the rest later, I also think there's something to be said for when there is some obvious overlap maybe in some of the skill sets and you're not going to, it's impossible to get and extract like the maximum value out of players when some of the skills and even weaknesses overlap rather than complementing each other, right? And so even though, yes, they have three superstars, you know, assuming Kyrie's on the court, they've got three superstars, undoubtedly. There are things that each superstar does like that they won't be able to do or that they can't do when the ball's not in their hands. And they are Durant is a different case, I think, because, you know, he's a unicorn in his own right, but Harden and Kyrie, especially when the ball is not in their hands, you don't get the maximum value out of them. I'm not saying they can't be useful off the ball. I'm just saying you don't get the maximum value out of them. So it's not like you can look at this and say, okay, you're getting, you know, this version of Harden, this version of Kyrie, like there's going to have to be some adjustments made, some sacrifices made. And I'm not saying it can't work. I'm just saying that there definitely seems to be a little more overlap here. And I'm stretching the word a little. It's probably a lot more overlap here, both in terms of strengths and weaknesses than maybe there usually is with most big threes or even star tandems. Now, having said that, it's still star talent. Kyrie's a great shooter who's a smart basketball player who can play off. Like there's no reason Kyrie can't thrive off the ball. It's just, there's also the fact that, you know, I know it was like a, a joke on Twitter, a great joke, by the way, but the whole thing about how, like, I don't remember who started it. It ended up going viral, but someone brought up the hilarious point that like Kyrie didn't want to be Robin to LeBron's Batman. And now he's going to be Alfred to Katie and, and Harden. Right. And you can like laugh at that, but there's like some truth to that. There is, some mystery there in terms of like, how does a guy like Kyrie accept what is essentially being the third banana on offense right now? There's just a lot more to it than, okay, these three stars are together together, and Brooklyn's going to get their max on-court value because I don't necessarily think that's the case. And before I hand it back to you here, I know I'm spelling out the obvious here, but defense does matter. And one of the reasons that 
I was even higher on Brooklyn once the season started than I was before the season when I already picked them to win the East was that regardless of what all the defensive numbers said, I did find promise in their defensive ability or their ability to play defense at least when it when they needed to based on what I had seen and I talked about this in the pod I wrote about this earlier this season some of the things they were doing I know you pointed out like it was better when they kept it simple sometimes they switched too much and it you know that's a big part of the reason they couldn't rebound but when they did keep it simple when they had guys like Lavert who I think might be an underrated perimeter defender funneling guys into the middle into the help where either Kevin Durant and usually Jared Allen were waiting the defense worked. It was functional. They were number two or number three in defensive effect. The field goal percentage, Lavert obviously less important to it, but losing Jared Allen, that defense is going to take a hit. And adding James Harden, very long way of saying, I, I think they're the favorites in the East, but I already thought they were the favorites in the East. And I think maybe what this does is it, it's the biggest and best insurance policy in the world in the event. Kyrie Irving's actually not in the picture. Yeah. All right. So I'll start just by taking it back, I think, to to what you're talking about, about overlapping skill sets. And I think there's an important distinction, right? Because a lot of people will sort of spin that into a question of fit and whether these three guys can quote unquote fit together uh, and, and throw out, you know, the only one ball theory uh, as if sharing it between the two of them is going to be impossible. And I do think there might be some discomfort there. You mentioned Kyrie and like, I don't think we really know all that went into his decision or his thought process behind forcing his way out of Cleveland. I don't necessarily think he just did it because he didn't want to be like a number two. Uh, It seems like there were some personal issues between him and LeBron that went beyond just like the on-court stuff. And I have to think, and again, I can't say this with any degree of certainty because Kyrie is such an enigma as we've talked about so many times before. And that's really like a fascinating part of this. It's like this blockbuster trade is going down and, and this this big three that's being created is kind of theoretical right now because one of the players is on a leave of absence for reasons that are not clear to us and we don't know when he's going to be back on the court. I still do have to think that at some point in time, conversations were had, this possibility was brought up, and Kyrie must have known that it was a possibility. He must have had some kind of say in the matter, right? Uh, and I know there have been burblings which seem unsubstantiated to me about Kyrie being upset that the Nets chose Steve Nash as head coach and he never wanted that. And it seems like maybe Durant is the guy who is driving the decision-making in the front office more so than Kyrie. So maybe this was purely a KD decision that, Kyrie's not going to be happy with, but I have to think that that he was at least consulted at some point in time about this possibility, no? You know what? I'm not as convinced about that. So if if he's just not down with it and as a result just decides that like he's not going to play or he's going to be a malcontent, then then what? Like I, I they can flip him, I suppose, but like at this point, like Kyrie's a, a, an incredible talent, but I just think especially in the midst of like what's going on now when you know, his commitment to NBA basketball is like an open question. I just don't know. Like they'd, they'd potentially just be trading him at the nadir of his value. Yeah, I know. I think it's very fair to wonder what value um, Kyrie has. If, I mean, it's crazy. We're getting to crazy hypothetical. Well, it's not crazy, but we're getting to hypotheticals now about Kyrie's potential. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, okay. So we, we, can circle, we can circle back to that, but I just want to say, okay, so... I do think there's going to be maybe some awkwardness where like 
at the end of games, it's not entirely clear who is getting the ball, who should be getting the ball. And maybe that causes some frustration, some discontent. But generally speaking, I think when you're throwing three players together that are this good at shooting, this good at handling the ball, this good at playmaking, I don't think it's a fit issue, right? And especially the shooting, right? I just think they'll they'll find a way to be extremely effective together offensively. I mean, we were even talking a couple episodes about how difficult the Nets were to guard just with like with Durant and Kyrie and like Joe Harris on the floor, right? Like how do you defend a pick and roll action at the top of the floor with one of either Kyrie or KD when like the other one of those guys and Joe Harris are like running action on the weak side and and teams didn't really have a good answer for that. And like you throw Harden into that mix and it's just like, there is too much shooting and playmaking on the floor to keep track of literally. And between those four guys and the Nets have like close to a 119 offensive rating with KD Kyrie and Joe Harris on the floor, you throw Harden into the mix and basically you're going to have two of those four guys on the floor for 48 minutes. They're going to be the best offense in the league, I think by a significant margin. Um, So in that respect, you know, the defense doesn't have to be much more than competent uh, for them to, potentially win a championship. So it's not a question of fit to me. What it is a question of is, so you mentioned the overlap, right? And the, and the kind of redundancies in their skill sets. And I actually think that's the case for like most big threes that get put together. I, I just think almost like necessarily, you can't really find three top tier superstars that are like perfectly mutually complementary. I think like the the Durant era Warriors are like one of the rare examples of that, right? And and like historically rare in that not only was it three guys, but four guys who basically complemented each other's skill sets and amplified each other's skill sets perfectly with very little overlap. But like, you know, you take it back to like even LeBron and Wade, right? Like they obviously played extremely well together, but they weren't a perfect on-court fit. You know, they they weren't perfect compliments. And, and that's a big part of the reason they didn't win the championship in 2011, you know, for, for, the, for the reasons that, uh, that made them not a perfect on-court fit. So I think generally that does happen. So the question to me becomes, okay, if there are diminishing returns where you have three players who specialize at the offensive end of the floor, uh, who, and I, this isn't necessarily true of Durant because I actually think Durant is like an elite off-ball player. And yeah, Kyrie, that's what I'm actually, saying. he's kind of a unicorn. Like he's he can do anything. Yeah, and and Kyrie honestly is a really good off-ball player too. But I I do think like him and Harden both are most effective with the ball in their hands. If they aren't feeling the ball, uh, because there's another ball dominant player on the court, like they have a tendency to drift when they're off of the ball. The question to me is not okay. It, it, like, can they fit together on offense? Uh, are they going to be able to? find a way to share the ball between them on offense. I think ultimately they'll strike that balance. The question to me is, okay, are the redundancies in their skill sets such that um, the the defensive flaws are becoming amplified, you know, because they haven't actually improved their offense enough um, because like the hole is just sort of inevitably less than the sum of the parts when you throw three players this offensively gifted together. Um, are the diminishing returns such that like you can't overcome the defensive deficiencies because losing Jared Allen is huge, man. Like this, this team was already really struggling on the defensive glass and they just got a whole lot smaller. 
rim protection is going to be a big issue. They now, like their only traditional center on the roster now is DeAndre Jordan, who's looked very creaky. Uh, KD is going to have to play a lot of five. Jeff Green's going to have to play a lot of five. Like rim protection is going to be an issue for them. And, you know, apart from Bruce Brown, who's just cracked the rotation, like in the last few days, they don't really have a lot of perimeter resistance either. Like KD is probably their best perimeter defender and the guy that they're going to have to throw at like, you know, Jason Tatum and Giannis and LeBron in, in theoretical playoff series. Right. And so like, can he handle those defensive assignments in, in playoff series coming off of an Achilles injury? And even if he can, it's like, they still need him to be their kind of like backline rim protector, right? Like he can't do both things. Um, I do think ultimately they'll probably pluck another big man like off of the buyout market, but I think the defensive concerns are legitimate. Um, and I, I already kind of felt like the Nets were switching a little bit too much for their own good. Like, I think this trade is just going to make them that much more switchy, right? Like they're going to be switching everything. And I, I have some concerns about that, which I can get into in a sec, but I've been talking for long enough. So I'll kick it back to you. Honestly, I'd say just get into those concerns, concerns okay, so, about this switch happy defense. So we've talked a lot before about how effective Harden can be well not yeah he can be effective in a switching defense but it's more so like that's just like the best way to hide his weaknesses and play to his strengths defensively because he's not great at fighting through screens and you know containing dribble penetration isn't really his forte but you switch everything and you can kind of keep the ball in front and Harden has no issue switching on to bigger players like that's that's how you maximize his strengths as a defender while sort of mitigating the weaknesses um and KD like he's looked really good defensively he can switch on to just about anybody, I think. Um, Kyrie is the one that I worry about. And I actually think like Kyrie's defensive reputation often overstates how bad he is at that end of the floor. Like when he's fully locked in, I actually think that he can be a pretty decent defender. There were stretches but- in those Cavs playoff runs, if you go back, and in the finals in particular, when he wanted to defend, he he defended. Definitely. And early on um, in his... Celtics tenure, like when he first got there and was rejuvenated after after leaving Cleveland, and it seemed like he had everything he wanted. He was praising Brad Stevens every day. Um, like early on in his Boston years, he was defending, I think, at a pretty high level as well. Like I, I do think he's capable, but I don't think he's a good switch defender. Uh, he he switches a bit lazily and doesn't close the gaps, which allows for slips. Um, he switches too readily, in my opinion, which just often leaves him marooned against bigger players. And unlike Harden, I don't think he's a particularly good defender of bigger players in the post. And then you often have him kind of in compromised positions where he's the one under the basket and he's not especially good at boxing out bigger players, which is a big part of the reason I think that Brooklyn's had these issues on the defensive glass. So I think it's... Nice to say, okay, well, they're just going to switch everything and like they'll manage to get by that way. I just don't think it's going to be quite that simple. Um, and, and I think Kyrie is is a big reason why I would be skeptical of that, bringing them a ton of success. So that's that's kind of where I'm at with that. It's obviously early. We haven't seen them play a game yet. Kyrie Irving's not even back yet. Based on everything we've discussed... If they were matched up in a playoff series right now against either LA team, do you pick them to win either series? Um, I might pick them to beat the Clippers. I I still wouldn't pick them to beat the Lakers. Yeah, I I don't know. I would have to think about it more. Like it's close to a toss up to me because I mean, 
obviously the Clippers would have a hard time defending them. Any team's going to have a hard time defending them. But just going back to what I was saying about their kind of lack of perimeter defense, it's like, okay, so like KD is going to have to guard Kawhi for an entire series. And then it's like, okay, I guess Bruce Brown maybe can take the Paul George assignment. But um, I, I don't know. It's just like... I think they they might have a, an equally difficult time guarding the Clippers as vice versa. And that might match up actually maybe wouldn't hurt their lack of rim protection as badly just because the, the Clippers don't actually put a ton of pressure on the rim. Like they're a very jump shot reliant team, which, which plays into Brooklyn's hands. So I, I think I would agree that I would probably give them a slight edge over the Clippers. I don't think I would give them the edge over the Lakers at this point. Um, And maybe that'll change once, once I actually see it in action, but I'm not like fully convinced even right now that they're, they're going to come out of the East just for the reasons I mentioned, right? Like it's asking a lot of KD as amazing as he's looked coming back from the Achilles, like the best ever, right. Coming, coming off of this injury. I don't think we've ever really seen anything like this where, where there's like literally no drop off in performance and that player is coming back and not like super young either. Right. Like on the wrong side of 30 playing at an MVP level, all yeah. that said, like it is asking a lot. I, I will say him. shout out to uh, Brianna Stewart. Definitely. But even her, like her shooting numbers dipped pretty badly right, in the yeah. post Achilles yeah. season. No. Yeah. For, for, for KD to do it, for KD to do what he's doing at his, at this stage in his career, given where he already was um, beforehand is, is basically unprecedented. Um, but but that's asking a lot of him to to be like the primary on the Giannis's of the world, you know? And I don't know, you can basically go through the rest of the kind of top contenders in the East and be like, all right, well, I mean, like, what are they going to do about Joel Embiid? You know, and, and hey, what are they going to do about like Bam Adebayo and Jimmy Butler? Like, how are they going to guard those guys? Like, what are they going to do about Tatum and Jalen Brown? I think you can kind of poke holes in, in a lot of different ways and as elite as their offense is going to be. And I do think they're going to be fully capable of just outscoring teams and winning shootouts, even if they can't defend a lick. I think you can make a case that there are a couple teams in the East, like Milwaukee, maybe Miami, who have the personnel to at least match up defensively. And that doesn't mean slow them down or stop them just because when you have the kind of shot making that Harden, Kyrie, and KD give you. Like, there's only so much a defense can even do. Um, But I think, you know, you can make the case that those teams have the personnel to match up where maybe you can't make the case that the Nets can match up on the other end of the floor. I think that there is something really almost poetic about a team with Kyrie Irving, James Harden. Durant, again, I'm not going to throw in there as much because he actually has um, a pretty great defensive ceiling and, and has flashed that potential, you know, for it's not potential. It's he's, he's been a good defender for the better part of the last, what half decade plus, but with Kyrie and, uh, and Harden, I just think there's something poetic about them on this quest to win this kind of like no defense championship with Steve Nash, Mike D'Antoni and hell throw Amari Stoudemire in there too. Cause he's on the coaching staff, right? Like that all these guys like Nash D'Antoni and even Amari to a certain extent yeah. are on this coaching staff. And now they're coaching this team that is essentially trying to do what, you know, I know the styles are very different, but it, from, from like a, let's just outscore the other team. We probably can't beat anyone defensively 
team that is trying to do what what those sons never could and what so many teams that followed in their footsteps never could. And I just think there's something really funny and ironic and, and almost poetic about that in and of itself. Yeah, and can we also take a second to acknowledge that Steve Nash went from having literally zero head coaching experience at any level and walks into the NBA and like 10 games into his coaching career now has Kyrie Irving, Kevin Durant, and James Harden on his team. Like, I understand that that can cause headaches and stress in its own right, but this guy might have to come out and apologize for his white privilege again after this, man. Like, that's absurd. What first-time coach? I mean, I guess you could say Steve Kerr. Um, Yeah, but you know what? Even Steve Kerr was different. Like, Steve Kerr inherited a good team, but Steve Kerr's own innovation... Right. And yeah, some luck too, like David Lee getting hurt and him putting Draymond yeah. in the starting lineup. But th- there was some innovation there too. Like he cha- he completely overhauled their offense, made it like more of a motion, read and react offense. Mark Jackson had the furthest thing from that. There were things that Steve Kerr did when he took over to turn an already good team he inherited into a great team. Yeah. Whereas oh, he, had to, he had to turn that caterpillar into a butterfly. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Whereas Nash just inherited this borderline super team already that then added James Harden weeks into the season. And I think you could argue Steve Nash is still the best point guard on the team. <laughs> I'm not going to argue that, but all right, well, but one could, I suppose. Could. You want to talk Rockets? Are we, are we all netted out? Or? Yeah, the, but just one last thing on the nets yeah. that I think is interesting. I'm, I mean, so I, I pointed this out in the piece that we wrote, but like this is quite a, a short runway, I think for Brooklyn. Oh um, yeah. They have, they have a two to three season at most window to win a championship. And, and you know what? You never know with Harden because that dude is like, apart from LeBron, I guess, probably like the most durable superstar in the league. He, he never gets injured. Um, and in his style of play honestly is like pretty low impact, I think compared to just, other superstars. Just on that note, I believe um, his tenure in Houston he averaged four missed games per season. So there you go. So yeah, he's 31 right now and has like a, a ton of tread on his tires, but like he hasn't really shown any signs of like physically breaking down, like apart from the fact that he just showed up completely out of shape for the season this year for reasons I think that we understand and that will probably change now that he's gotten what he wants. Yeah, he'll take the fat suit off. Um, I think that, you know, th- there's a, a really good chance that he's still going to be playing at a super high level, like into his mid thirties. But I did think it was interesting. Durant's 32 and obviously has this Achilles injury in the rear view. Kyrie, even when he is ostensibly committed to playing for the team that employs him, has had trouble staying on the floor because of injuries. And they, they just like, don't have a ton of time uh, to make this work. And, um, Woj, after after um, the trade got announced, as is kind of his want, you know, like to to just do a little bit of PR work um, that helps grease the wheels for the access that he gets, said, whatever the future of Kyrie Irving with the Nets, this trade does one more important thing for Brooklyn. It makes a strong case to help keep the franchise's most important player, Kevin Durant, beyond his current contract. Which I thought was interesting because, again, Durant's 32. His contract runs through 2023, albeit with a player option uh, for that final year. But if he were to, say, pick that option up, that's taking him through his age 35 season. And KD has said in the recent past 
that he sees himself retiring at age 35. So I'm I'm interested in the idea that that would be a consideration here. Listen, man, they, they have a two to three season window, and that's probably being generous. It's probably a two season window. Look, you and I are not convinced Kyrie Irving is going to be in the NBA beyond his current contract, right? And that that's not a knock or shade. Like we talked on our last episode about how there's like there's something admirable about the fact that he does really just consider this a job, knows there's a greater purpose for him out there. But we're not convinced Kyrie Irving's in the NBA beyond his current contract, as you just we pointed out. Kevin Durant might not be in the NBA or might not be in Brooklyn at the very least beyond this current contract. James Harden, depending on what happens with those guys, who knows, you know, whether he'd stick around without like and, and has, you know, a year and a half or whatever is left on his contract. They have this two season window to win and they can do it. Obviously, the upside is there. And if they do it, flags fly forever. This is pro sports is a business of trying to win a champ. You win a championship, everything is worth it. I don't care how long your franchise wanders in the wilderness after that because you went for broke Pat Riley style to to accumulate stars. Having said that, if they don't win a championship in those two to three seasons, and even great teams, statistically, the numbers just there's 30 teams in the league. There's at, you know at least a couple contenders every year. Like chances are you're not going to win. And if they don't win, just fold this franchise. <laughs> this is going to get bleak. Okay, it's going to get bleak and. The chances that a franchise can recover from what the Nets already had to recover from after the madness of their last all-in move, which obviously was a lot more risky and had a lot less upside, they're not coming back from that a second time. So I guess you can say there are high stakes here for the Nets. Yeah. I I just think it's funny that it's the Nets. I mean, it's like, (laughs) I I don't get the sense that Brooklyn has like a rabid fan base not like brooklyn as a borough like obviously brooklyn has like a rich rich basketball history but i I just think like how many of those people actually abandoned the knicks and are now nets fans like how many people how many people will actually care if this team does win a championship no one cares about the nets like i as as in terms of being like a a like a fully formed fan I mentioned this like in the first week of the season that the Nets are one of the teams whose piped in crowd noise is louder than their actual crowd ever was. That's not I even a joke. I think it would joke. be great if to like simulate a real Nets home game, they just intentionally piped in like really muted crowd noise. <laughs> yeah. So be like, look, honestly, we want to make you guys feel at home. So. We're going to let you know what it feels like to actually be at a Nets home game. And our home crowd sucks. So the Nets, Nets versus Clippers in the finals in a non-pandemic world would be the finals to determine who gets to throw a 13-person parade. <laughs> the little brother bowl. Yeah, exactly. I'm re- I, I apologize to any Nets or Clippers fans who may be listening to this no, pod. I mean, don't I, apologize. I, we're, not, we're not criticizing them. We're saying they're essentially loners, but we're not criticizing them. Yeah. I just think like the vast majority of NBA fans are are going to be watching the Nets intently, obviously because it's going to be really fascinating to see how these three players play together. The star power is just ridiculous. We get to see maybe a glimpse of like the future that never was in OKC and what might have been if they hadn't traded James Harden. But I think also a lot of people are going to be watching uh, because they want to see it fail spectacularly. And the chaos potential and the implosion potential is going to be a big draw, I think, to a lot of people. Yeah. Because that's like, it, it's magnetic. 
you know, the, just the, the disaster potential is, is something that I think a lot of people want to tune in for. I, I still can't get over the fact you apologize to the Nets and Clippers fans listening. None of them are listening. Uh, sorry, right, Billy Crystal and Ian Eagle. Uh, we apologize. <laughs> All right, let's talk Rockets, man. From one, uh, from, from the depressing conversation that is Nets and Clippers fandom to the depressing situation the Houston Rockets find themselves in. They acquired a shit ton of draft capital. No arguments there. They got four first rounders outright, three from the Nets, one from the Cavs via the box. It's a Bucks pick. It's unprotected in 2022. It's not going to mean much now that Giannis is locked up. They got the four first rounders outright. They got four more pick swaps. So, you know, as I like to say, they acquired control, you know, over eight first rounders. Good for them. I've seen a couple outlets, not going to name names, call this a win for the Rockets. Name and names. In- Please name names. It, I, I don't even disagree. I just I, I just want to hear. It made me throw up in my mouth a little bit. Okay. Again, maybe this is me going back to the whole Pat Riley thing and my... Okay, but Cash, Cash. Yeah, obviously, in the grand scheme of things, it's a loss for the Rockets because they lose James Harden. But, but, but given the circumstances, like given what he was putting them through and the fact that, you know, like... He was he was gnawing away at their leverage by behaving the way that he was behaving and playing the way that he was playing. They had to move him because of the toxic environment that he'd created. He made it very clear he didn't want to play there anymore. Like his teammates no longer even wanted to play with him. They weren't necessarily dealing from a, a position of great strength. Given all of those circumstances, like you have to contextualize it a bit, you know, right. and, and and under those circumstances, I don't think it's crazy to say that they are a winner here. I'd say at best they are an okay loser. <laughs> I can't, no, I can't, I can't, even within that context, I can't call them a winner. I don't believe. That's fine. It, listen, the draft capital, like I said, I'm not arguing with the draft capital. That's fine. That's a win for them, especially in the shadow of all that they have surrendered in draft capital over the years to keep the revolving door of hardened teammates that he's going to grow tired of spinning. But if you, if someone had told you, okay, yeah, Harden's going to be a, a bit of a piss baby about it for the first couple of weeks and he's going to tank his value. But even all that said, the crown jewel of the Rockets trade from a player perspective, okay, isn't going to be like a young prospect type player. It's going to be Victor Oladipo, who, listen, Victor Oladipo, has seemingly regained like the pep in his step that that ruptured quad took from him. And he's been solid to start the season. And I think uh, Oladipo wall backcourt is going to be really dynamic. It's going to be really fun. I think with Christian Wood there, like if if everything breaks right, they have a path to the play-in potentially. Or at least to compete for the play-in in the West. Oladipo's an expiring contract. On an expiring contract, sorry. He was unhappy in Indiana. There's already reports that he still has his eyes on Miami or elsewhere. Like, I I don't think Houston is keeping Victor Oladipo. And there were other young players involved in this deal, like Jared Allen. I'm not saying Jared Allen would be a great option as the crown jewel of a James Harden trade, but still, as we discussed off-air yesterday, it very much appears to me and to us that the Rockets punted on the opportunity to acquire Jared Allen to... Avoid paying the luxury tax. Well, I think it was more that they just don't want to pay his next contract. And he, like he was about to become an RFA and, and and I don't think they wanted any part of that deal. Okay. Which, which I don't I don't at all agree with. Like I, I would have wanted to keep him if I was the Rockets, but. but... But this is what I'm saying. Like you talk about having to contextualize things. 
like from their side of things. And I think when you contextualize things and, and, and get the whole story and look at the whole picture from their side of things, a very successful era of consistent excellence has officially come to an end. Now I know it was on its last legs anyway and was depressing at this point, but it has now officially come to an end. They traded a guy, obviously they had to, but they traded a guy who is, you know, an elite offense unto himself, a generational player, a guy that's essentially a walking 50 win season and second round appearance when, you know, when he was engaged and they traded him for a bunch of draft capital and most likely no actual player or young player talent, whatever that's going to be there beyond this year. And even if Victor Oladipo takes them on this great run this year and they finish like seventh or eighth and they get a couple playoff games out of it, this is still a failure to me. Unless Victor Oladipo ends up re-signing and is like the Oladipo we saw two or three years ago and actually becomes like a foundational piece for them for the next few years, which I guess is possible, but extremely unlikely. Barring that, this is a huge loss for them. And I don't think four first rounders and four swaps overrides that. Would you have felt differently if instead of all this draft capital, they'd just taken a package essentially centered on Ben Simmons? Yes. And because it sounds like that was on the table. Yes, so- I would have felt better because look, as as much as um, I rag on Ben Simmons's flaws, I also have also acknowledged, always acknowledged that he is a great young talent who is so good on the defensive, like on one side of the ball, let alone what he can still do on the offensive end, despite his limitations. Like Ben Simmons is a starting point. Now, I don't think he can be the best player on a championship team, but is he a better starting point right now than Victor Oladipo? If you're kind of resetting your franchise, I believe so. I don't think that's even a question. No, that's not a question. The question is, would you rather have Right, then the picks, yes. Or would would you rather have all those picks? Because there's a very good chance that none of those picks will turn out to be anything as good as Ben Simmons. Exactly, and that's what I'm saying. So he's he's better and a more future-minded player than the actual player you acquired and is most likely better than any pick you're going to acquire because just likelihood-wise, that's how it goes. So yeah, I absolutely would have preferred that deal. That's what I'm saying. Like I, I think when you contextualize it from Houston's perspective, I think they took a huge L here. I think it's not insane and and not so cut and dried to me that they would choose the picks over Simmons. I probably would have chosen Simmons as well. And to be honest, like I'm not even a huge Simmons guy really, but I just think, you know, my stance has always been, um, I, I prefer to take, you know, the, the proven commodity than the, the theoretical chance to, draft somebody that might turn out to be a player of that caliber or better somewhere down the road. But I mostly apply that to teams that are like in contention where like if I'm a team in contention or on the fringes of contention, I would rather have a great player than a great draft asset. But in this case, I think it's, it's complicated because do you take the proven commodity when that proven commodity is proven to be a fundamentally flawed player who's really difficult to build around? Like that, that I, I don't think is so clear to me. Um, and, and yeah, I think it would have been an easier sell to be like, okay, well, look, we got Ben Simmons and this is our new franchise player. Like we, we traded our franchise player, but we got another one that we're going to build around. But I just don't know if Simmons is that guy. Like, I think there's this sort of romanticized idea of building a team out of Ben Simmons surrounded by shooters. And I just don't think that it's that simple. Like you're still going to run into the same issues 
with your half court offense. Like, yeah, you can put spacing around him, but Ben Simmons is not Giannis. You know what I mean? Like he's not putting the same kind of pressure on a defense where he can just like blow you to bits at the point of attack. And then like the shooting around him can really play up. Like you still are going to need a lot of off ball creation, I think around him in order to make that work. I still think of him more as a power forward than I do as a point guard, as good as he may be at running the break. I really don't think it's as simple as like Ben Simmons and shooters and you're off to the races. You know what I mean? Like I do think he can be a a defensive pillar that you can build around at that end of the floor. And that's super important, but I think there are complexities that come along with trying to build around a player as fundamentally flawed as he is. And I can understand the Rockets saying that they didn't really want any part of that. I think the bigger concern for the Rockets right now, you talk about Simmons being a fundamentally flawed player and how to build a team around him is how do you build a franchise um, run and owned and operated by a fundamentally flawed Tillman Fertitta. Fundamentally flawed human. <laughs> yeah. Which, look, we're all flawed humans. I think he's more flawed and uh, runs his basketball team. like One uh, of his god-awful businesses? Yeah. Yeah, look, so so that is interesting to me, like the choice they made to take the picks over Simmons. And, and it's interesting to me that they decided that they wanted Oladipo more than they wanted Levert. Um, and, and I think that Oladipo is a better player than Levert right now. And and we can get into that when we talk about Indiana, but I I just think they're functionally a rebuilding team now. And Levert is two years younger with two extra years of team control. And Oladipo is about to become a free agent. Like his free agency is going to be interesting because he really has the rockets over a barrel. Like you'd think, unless they just don't really have any intention of keeping him, which would be insane because he's, the only player of consequence they acquired for James Harden. (laughs) This is what I'm saying. Like, I I feel like he can press them for something close to a max contract. And at that point, like maybe they just walk away or maybe they try and flip him before the deadline this year. But in any case, I think I'm not a huge Karis Levert guy, but like they could have at least had a player who could have been part of their core, at least for the next three seasons. Right. And instead they took the guy on an expiring deal. And it just, I don't know, that that's an interesting decision to me. And I really wonder like what their plan is with Oladipo, like whether they're already thinking about re-signing him and talking to him about his openness to re-signing or whether they're really just going to look to flip him for more assets. Because I think in that case, I mean, how much more trade value does Oladipo have than Karis LeVert anyway? Like I, I'm just, <laughs> yeah. So, so I don't know. I mean, maybe they really just believe in Oladipo's ability to get back to the player that he was. Like, I think he's obviously been but a lot better this season than he again, was last year. But even if they believe that, all indications, Oladipo already basically has one foot out the door. Like, is already eyeing. Well, you said Miami, team. but 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 Miami can't sign him out, right? Like, they they don't have cap space. So if they figure something out, it's a sign and trade. In which case, that works out pretty well for the Rockets. So may, maybe that's part of their thinking. Honestly, I, I have no idea. I, I just think that <laughs> that's a really fascinating decision. Uh, deciding that Oladipo was the guy they wanted. And then the other young, you know, borderline foundational piece that they got in this deal was Jared Allen. And they flip him for, as you mentioned, what's going to be a a pretty lousy first round pick in 2022. Is that still, are they still planning for that to be the double cohort year? No, I think 2023. So in that case, yeah, it's it's not a great draft asset, given that, yeah, I mean, the Bucks 
still have Giannis, like presumably they're going to extend Holiday. Like they'll still be a really good team. That to me is like going to be a 25th to 30th overall pick. And they did get Dante Exum, who's a player that I do still think has some untapped upside, who's actually playing pretty well for the Cavs this year. Um, Gives them like a multi-positional wing defender. But yeah, I mean, to me, if I was the Rockets, I would have way rather have Jared Allen. I mean, that's like, that can be your center of the future. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like they didn't acquire the type of young talent or player that like, yes, the draft capital is all good, but usually when you trade a player of anything close to James Harden's magnitude, you get that draft capital and a young cornerstone type player. But the, the interesting thing to me is like, it was by choice, right? Yes, like, that's, that's what I'm saying. They, they chose, chose to not chose take Jared out. Young players. Like, like, you know, they chose not to get Ben Simmons. They chose to flip Jared mm-hmm. Allen. Uh, and I mean, they went all in on draft capital, which is, I mean, that's a choice. Yeah. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Scores Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out The Score's YouTube page for an informative yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. All right, let's move to where you want this conversation to go. And honestly, I might leave the room, get a coffee, (laughs) eat lunch, and come back, and then we'll just talk Cavs after because I'm about to cede the microphone over to you to talk Indiana Pacers. I 36 hours ago, I tweeted that the Pacers... Uh, we're a fun team with a good vibe about them, which I still believe. I, I think, if anything, getting a little deeper out of there might actually improve that vibe. I was almost upset at what Nate Bjorkren had done here with the Pacers because uh, for the foreseeable future, I could not make fun of them on the pod or make fun of you on the pod. How are you feeling as a lifelong Pacers fan? Conflicted. Harris Levert in the mix, Victor Oladipo. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm conflicted. I think... Undoubtedly, from a big picture perspective, from an asset management perspective, you know, from a long-term team building perspective, this was the right decision. Like, this is a great trade for the Pacers in the grand scheme of things. I, I think Oladipo is better than Levert. I think he's a better fit on this Indiana team than Levert is. And so I think in the present day, it makes the team worse. And given how well they've been playing to start this season, that is kind of a bummer. At the same time, like this isn't the Pacers championship window. And I don't know if this core in Indiana is ever going to have a championship window, but I think it's totally fair for them to assess the situation. Say, look, we have this disgruntled player who's not going to resign with us anyway we're probably not going to win the championship this year. Especially not if like one of our key players is unhappy. We're going to try and get what we can for him now. And and given all those circumstances, given the fact that, you know, Oladipo is two years older, that he was on an expiring contract, that he's still kind of working his way back from a, a really nasty leg injury. And the fact that, you know, his reputation, I think is still subsisting in part on the leftover helium from that one transcendent all NBA season three years ago. 
I think this is this is great return. Uh, this is great value. And and like again, Levert, two years younger, on a three year deal that's pretty cost effective. Uh, he's going to be earning on average seventeen and a half million through the 2022-23 season, uh, which to me is going to be like far exceeded by the next contract that Oladipo signs. This is the thing where it's tough, right? Because Oladipo has this high watermark and this general body of work, I think, that is far more impressive than anything Karis Levert has done in the NBA. But it also seems like like Oladipo is kind of plateaued, right? Like I don't think that he's going to get back to the level that he was at in 2017-18 as much as like, having that be something that he's proven capable of is an important consideration. Whereas Levert, I still see trending upwards. And to me, given his age probably gives him like a little bit more long-term upside. So that's kind of where I see it in, in big picture terms. Like I think it's a good trade. Like you, you can't really deny that it's a good trade, but I do think in terms of the fit with this roster, it's a downgrade. Uh, and I think that just might dim the Pacers' prospects, at least for this season. I, I didn't think this team had much playoff upside anyway. Like, I thought they'd be, even though I think they're a better team and they're more functional, and we've talked about their shot profile and all that, I still th- thought of them as, like, a really tough first round out that was most likely not beating one of those top five or six teams in the East in a playoff series. I thought the biggest thing for them to address was the uncertainty around Victor Oladipo. And I think they've done that, as you mentioned, in a really great way, a really smart way. Um, And now they're in a situation where, you know, you've got, um, whether it's to keep them as part of the future or to have them, you know, to use in future trades, they've got DeMontis Sabonis, Miles Turner, Malcolm Brogdon, and now Karis LeVert all locked up, um, and Justin Holiday, I believe too, all locked up through at least 2023. And that's a pretty nice little core to have locked up long term. Um, again, you know that if they want to eventually move off Miles Turner or to, you know try to go big game hunting, like they've got pieces, got they've for the most part got all their draft picks coming up. Like they, I think there is a path to a brighter future, um, or I know there is today than there was yesterday with Oladipo in the fold and kind of the uncertainty there. And I think. If you're a team like the Pacers in a non-glamour market where free agency, you know, is most likely not how you're going to get over the hump, um, you know, you might have to kind of incrementally get there through trades and just like smart roster building. I think, yeah, I think yesterday was a very clear win for the Pacers, even if it means this year, I don't know, if, if their ceiling was maybe actually getting to like the second round or something and beating one of those teams and maybe now it's not, like I, I don't. I think the trade-off is worth it to bump the ceiling up higher um, and give yourself more flexibility in the future. And, and to be clear, like I, I think Levert's good. And I'm actually like a big fan of his game, just on an aesthetic level. I, I enjoy watching him play, even though I think he gets real dribble happy sometimes. I think he's a good player. You know, the issue as I see it is Levert really does his best work with the ball in his hands. Like he is just great at decelerating, changing pace, those stop and go drives. Like he's actually a really good pick and roll playmaker who has a keen sense of how to manipulate the defense. He's really good at putting defenders in jail, just kind of trapping them on his hip. Um, But again, like he can be pretty ball dominant. And I think that could cause some fit issues with, for one thing, 
you know, the Pacers run a lot of their offense through Sabonis, either from the elbow or out of the post. And also, I think Malcolm Brogdon has been absolutely incredible as a lead initiator uh, off the dribble this season. And you bring in Levert and suddenly, you know, it's, it's like one more mouth to feed. And I think a big part of what has made the Pacers offense really successful this season was the fact that, and I don't know how happy he was about this setup, but like Oladipo really did seed a lot of his on-ball possessions to Brogdon and Sabonis and committed to playing extremely well off the ball. And the Pacers just like ran a lot of creative off-ball sets for him, getting him in motion. I think he's a he's a wicked cutter. Uh, I think he's a better off-ball mover than Levert is. And maybe most importantly, like he just has way more gravity as an off-ball player than Levert does. Um, and so I went back through the last three years to see how are these guys shooting on catch and shoot threes and Levert's at 30%, Oladipo's at 39%. And that's a huge difference. Um, and so I think bringing Levert in, in that way is going to pose some challenges. I also think Oladipo is like a way better defensive player, um, particularly as a team defender. And I think there are some workarounds to that. Um, as I wrote about, I, I think that, Levert's best role once TJ Warren is back healthy might just be to come off the bench and kind of play that six man role he was playing in Brooklyn. Um, and I think tethering him to Miles Turner in transitional lineups would be a great idea because the thing that Levert is best at as is just like burrowing into the lane, putting pressure on the rim uh, and spraying out to shooters and Turner can help space the floor for him. Right. And then you, if you sort of separate his minutes from those of Sabonis and Brogdon, you mitigate, I think, a lot of those fit issues. Uh, and also Turner can like cover for some of his defensive weaknesses at the other end. I would like to point out that uh, the co-byline piece we wrote assessing this trade from all four angles was 2,800 words. <laughs> 900 of those 2,800 words were dedicated to the Indiana Pacers. They got the longest blurb. Hey, listen, man, I think it's a, it's a really interesting trade. and And I think... It's, I, I just think it's interesting because it shines a light on the, on the kind of decisions that teams in Indiana's position have to make exactly. and, and the calculus that goes into it, right. where, where they are balancing short and long-term ambitions and trying to figure out which should take priority. And I think this is a trade that balances those things pretty well for Indiana because it's not a huge downgrade in the present, um, but it does give them more long-term upside. Uh, it does get them out of the kind of tricky conversation about Oladipo's next contract and the decision they were going to be faced with about whether they wanted to, you know, potentially go above and beyond and probably go into the luxury tax to keep him or lose him for nothing. And this way they get a good young player on a good contract uh, who I do think can really help them. Like to be clear, Levert is a great passer, a solid self creator. Uh, he actually shoots threes way better off of the dribble than he does off of the catch. Um, he drives the ball, I think, like 15 times a game, which is one of the highest marks in the league. It's up there with Brogdon. He's so, a tough player too, man. Like he, He's he got a fearlessness about him. And I mean, I guess that's part of the, probably the driving numbers are probably part of that. Yeah, and he's he showed out in the playoffs before. 100%, yeah. Um, and I do think come playoff time, as much as I think Oladipo is better, the Pacers might honestly get more out of Levert in a playoff setting because I think he's a little bit better as a ball handler and a self-creator. He's a better finisher at the rim. 
I think, you know, you can make a case that there's maybe a little bit more playoff upside there. So I think he does enough for them in the present where they could feel justified in pulling the trigger on this move. Um, and grand scheme of things, again, from an asset management perspective, uh, I, I think it's a, a coup for the Pacers. All right, let's finish this pod as we finished our written piece with the Cleveland Cavaliers. I think Cavs fans should be delighted about Cleveland sneaking into this deal and kind of making off like bandits, if you ask me. With Giannis now committed to the Bucs long-term, that Milwaukee unprotected 2022 first-rounder isn't nearly the asset it once was. Exum, who you mentioned was having a, a solid season for the Cavs. He's in his seventh season. Um, he's rarely proven capable of staying in the lineup. He owns career shooting splits of like 41, 31, 76. Uh, a 2024 second rounder, as I wrote in the piece, is a pittance. And yet, that package landed them a cornerstone type player, as we were mentioning, Houston should have been pursuing. You know, not that Jared Allen's ever going to be a franchise type player, but he is and can be Cleveland's center of the future just like he could have been in Houston. Now, he's going to be a restricted free agent this summer, so obviously there's no guarantees, but again, restricted. The Cavs um, can still control the situation here. He's 22 years old. He's a high IQ big. Um, the numbers, I mean, the numbers almost don't matter with him. He's 11 points, 10 boards, couple assists, 1.6 blocks, he's shooting like 67% from the field because he's obviously very selective with his individual offense. He's essentially just you know, an efficient interior finisher and role man on the offensive end. But even if that's all he is on the offensive end for the rest of his career, he's already a great defensive player with even more defensive upside. And if you project him as this kind of like backline anchor of the future for a Cavs team that, as we've discussed, might be onto something with, you know, okay, whether you want to talk about Colin Sexton and Darius Scarlett in the backcourt, but even with Isaac Okoro, if you consider Larry Nance still part of the future, um, Chetty Osman, like there, there's something here. And especially on the defensive end, which we've already seen this season, uh, they they have a tough physical defensive presence about them. And I think adding Jared Allen to that mix gives them like a really nice potential identity to build with, right? Like they'll have to figure some things out on the offensive end, but a lot of things actually, but there is like a really nice defensive identity there that they can actually build on. And I just think, and, and, and I kind of, I mentioned this in the piece, like so much of their recent history, non-LeBron history, so much of it is littered by bad decisions, poor asset management, and even worse basketball. And I think with Allen in place, with the rest of this core, with some of the positives they've shown, you know, to end last season, to start this season, I think there is finally reason for long-term optimism. Although they obviously have a lot of work to do and, and a long ways to go to actually build like some sort of sustainable contender, but they are starting to put the pieces in place. And I think Allen is a great example of that. And to get him, even as a as a pending restricted free agent for Dante Exum and a 2024 second rounder and a Bucks 22 for 2022 first rounder that will likely go in the last few picks of the first round, I think I think the Cavs made off like bandits in this deal, and I think Cavs fans should be really happy about it. And also, I will add, Jared Allen is probably already a two-way upgrade over Andre Drummond. Um, and so I think they are, if they do have a chance to hang around the East playoff race for the remainder of the year, and, and if that is still their goal, 
I think they actually have a better chance to do that now than they did yesterday. I think they've improved at least slightly in the short term. They're better equipped to now trade Drummond without taking a hit this season, and you can probably recoup some more future-minded assets. So just overall, I think they probably got a little better in the short term. They um, greatly improved their long-term outlook, I think, if they can retain Allen. And they did it for, you know, as I mentioned, pretty much a pittance. So no complaints from me on the Cavs end. Yeah, and Dante Exum, it should be noted, is injured again and just has been like totally cursed throughout his career in terms of in terms of the nicks and bruises that he's picked up. Uh, and in some cases, way worse than nicks and bruises. Uh, he, he's just had chronic injuries, can't stay on the floor. So uh, as much as I kind of like him maybe as a long-term project, uh, it, it, it's just like his career has been interrupted so many times by injuries that... I don't think giving up on that project uh, is a bad thing. And I, I do feel, okay, so, you know, Allen's going to hit restricted free agency. I'm curious to see what the market for him looks like. We've talked in the past just about restricted free agency and how that tends to suppress guys' value. Teams tend to, res- to retain their own RFAs. Um, offer sheets get thrown out and signed very rarely these days. Uh, cap space has just become such a premium that tying it up for a couple of days in a player that you know teams might believe is just going to resign or, or be matched anyway by the incumbent team uh, they just don't bother doing it so maybe that leads to the Cavs being able to bring Allen back for you know a reasonable price tag but I- I'm curious you know what they're going to go into the offseason thinking because are they prepared for another team to potentially give Allen like a four year, $92 million contract, something like that. Are they prepared to match that? Um, Because I think that's probably what scared the Rockets off. Right. And, and obviously that has a lot to do with Tillman Fertitta's finances, but it probably also has something to do with the fact that as much as I think Allen's really good at the things he specializes at, his player type, the kind of rim running, rim protecting five, who doesn't really handle the ball, isn't much of a playmaker, doesn't shoot. Um, that player type is a pretty common one and one that you can approximate at least, you know, for like something like 70% of the value that a player like Jared Allen's going to give you for way, way cheaper. I, I agree. I think that's a great move for the Cavs because he does give them a sort of defensive bedrock. Uh, along with Isaac Okoro. I mean, this was a team that literally had the worst defensive rating in NBA history two years ago, and then was like, I don't know, half a point per hundred possessions better than that last year. Like literally two of the worst defensive seasons of all time. And now, I mean, if you just look at like the rankings this season, I think they're in the top three in defensive rating. I don't think that's going to last, but obviously between Okoro, um, Nance, Allen, like that's a pretty decent defensive foundation that they can build on. And especially given the defensive deficiencies of their very small backcourt, something that's, you know, in the front court going to be really important. So given that they gave up the first round pick to get him, I would think that the Cavs are prepared to like match almost any offer to keep him around and probably see him as being a a long-term piece. But I I also think it's possible that he might wind up getting an offer sheet that makes them uncomfortable. Yeah, in which case, you know, it changes obviously how we look at the deal, but even in that case, still a more than worthwhile gamble, you know, low risk gamble yeah. on, on Cleveland's part to add a big man of the future. 
they also so they got Tori and Prince in this deal, right? That's where that's where Prince ended up. Look, I, I have been open about the fact that I think Prince for the last couple seasons has been like pretty bad. But I, I think a change of scenery might do him good. And there are certain things that he is good at. I think he's better than what he's shown the last couple of years. The shooting regression has been worrisome, but he's actually pretty good at attacking off of the catch. And when he makes like quick, decisive moves, he's good at getting to the rim uh, and finishing there. So I think, it, you know, if they can just help him sort of simplify his game, play off of those two guards um, and find a niche there, then he, you know, could, could potentially be a nice addition for them as well. But obviously that's not the headliner here. And, and as far as like the, 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 the center depth that they now have. Yeah, they're obviously going to have to make a trade, right? Um, because they were already pretty log jammed at center with Drummond, McGee, Nance, Kevin Love. That That's a pretty crowded front court. And it'd be nice if they could offload Drummond and even maybe pull back a, a decent asset in return. I think that's going to be tough to do just because of his contract, right? Like matching the salaries there. Um I think if they want to get anything of value in a trade for him, they're going to have to eat some bad long-term money in return. And I don't know if that's something they're going to be willing to do, but they'll probably find a way to offload him. Worst case scenario, I guess they buy him out and, and move forward. I think with like, I like the, I like the idea of a Nance Jared Allen front court. I think that's a really interesting fit actually. Even just thinking about, uh, I'll throw a core out in there too but even just thinking about like the defensive upside of that trio again it's just like a type of identity and even just like a reason for long-term optimism that the Cavs haven't had in forever yeah I mean they, they've got a little something brewing there that's something in its own right right like for a franchise that in non-LeBron years has never other than I guess you could say when they you know first drafted Kyrie and maybe those first couple years before they realized what Anthony Bennett was going to be maybe for that, like those few months between when he got drafted and when he made his debut, when it seemed like, you know, they were building something there. It's, it's been a hard years, hard non LeBron years in Cleveland. And I think that fans there should be thrilled about the fact that they seem to actually be making good and prudent roster construction decisions. And they have a direction now too, I think, which is what they've really been missing, right? Like it's been, or it's felt at least very aimless for the last few years. But I think, you know, they've clearly prioritized defense, which I think is absolutely the right call given the, you know, the, the guards at the center of their roster that are ultimately, I think going to determine how successful this iteration of the team can be. And, and so it's kind of easy to see the vision now and, and where they're trying to go. Uh, and I think the team actually from a long-term perspective makes a ton more sense and I think, yeah, there's definitely reason to be excited. As there should be for any Pound the Rock listeners for the rest of the season. James Harden's in Brooklyn. The NBA's wild. Got anything else to add? I think you said it all, man. We'll be back next week unless, I don't know, someone else gets traded or something wild goes down in the next couple of days. But I think for all of our sanities, uh, it's probably best we come back, start fresh next week with a new look NBA. Until then, for Joe Wolfon, I'm Joseph Cacharo. Pound the Rock.